0: Village Church. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a good day to worship Jesus together. Yeah, it's a good day to um, be free to to worship Jesus, and we celebrate um, being free to worship Jesus every Sunday, and and particularly on this Sunday, we're grateful for it. And so, happy Fourth of July. Yeah, I'm glad you're here uh, with us this morning, and not some like lame street fair, you know, like buying overpriced kettle corn from the boy scouts or whatever you know it's not like a fourth of july unless you get like fleeced by the boy scouts for kettle corn all right that was like a strong start right you're like new here (laughs) like i'm new here this guy's just like roasting the boy scouts for like one minute in it's not too late to go get to another church Anyway, we're glad to uh, be together. Glad to have you guys here. Glad to have all youth kids sitting together. Happy Fourth of July, youth kids. you have fun at Denny's this morning? Yes? Yes. All right. We, uh, we placed a firework under every chair, of course. Um, please save those for the last song. But... Uh, <laughs> We wrapped up the book of Nehemiah last Sunday, it was an awesome time that we got to have together over a few months, and next week we announced, um, we we announced recently next week we're gonna be starting the book of Acts, and so we're excited for that. We had a great time in Nehemiah, and we found this little little Sunday that landed on July 4th, and we haven't had a Sunday that landed on July 4th in 11 years, and so we, We've committed as as pastors to find Sundays on occasion to address particular topics in, in a sort of Christ and culture ongoing series. And so um, this morning we're gonna open up God's word and consider the topic of a biblical view of freedom. And so I'm excited for that. This morning I'm excited to do that with you. And of course, today we celebrate Fourth of July, we celebrate Independence Day. This goes back to July 4th, 1776, right, kids? Yes? Yeah. The Declaration of Independence adopted by the Continental Congress, 13 colonies wanted to break free from the British rule. We have some British people at this church, so we just kind of try to avoid them today. <laughs> <laughs> the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence states that it's a God-given right of the people to overthrow an unjust government. And that sounds, I mean, that sounds really cool, honestly. But... The real reason for the war, of course, was that we were just tired of, you know, being told what to do by guys who dress like this guy, right? Okay? (laughs) Now, in our country, there's no doubt that freedom and this topic has been a major topic of the last year, right? From all sorts of things, from political candidates to um, COVID responses, and the topic of faith and freedom and civic duty, that's been a real major issue today. And And I think our society is constantly inviting us to be angry about some new battle and pulling us into battles and bringing battles to us and saying, well, aren't you angry about this? Don't you have an opinion on this? And We also feel the pressure to display our solidarity with all sorts of things lately, right? Many of which are unbiblical. I think it's a good question for Christians to consider which battles does God want us to fight And how does God want us to engage? And so we've gone verse by verse through Nehemiah. We're headed into verse by verse in the book of Acts. But today we're going to have a unique little Sunday as we just examine this topic of freedom. And here's kind of where I want to go this morning. I want to start in the garden in the beginning. And I want to talk through some other parts. I just grabbed a few things I think are good for us. We're going to look at the Israelites in Exodus. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul, particularly in Philippians And we're gonna finish in in Revelation and see the full and final end for us. There's a couple questions for us to answer together this morning. The first is, how should Christians think about freedom? And the second one is, how hard should Christians fight for socio-political freedom? And then the third question, which I think is more obvious, is just, would it be okay if, um, when we post the sermon on the website, we use this uh, photo? I don't know if that's what. Just kidding. just kidding. Just kidding. You can pull that one down. You can pull that one down. So we start at the beginning of Scripture and we consider this idea of freedom and we see that the first humans, Adam and Eve, they had a beautiful, free, joyful life with God in the garden. This was ultimate freedom physical, spiritual, political, social. It's very free. I mean, how free? I mean, for starters, they didn't have any clothes on, right? But I was li- listening to this um, video that somebody had, had filmed. It was one of those um, deconstructing Christian you know, influencers on Instagram, right? And they said this question that I thought was a little fascinating. They said, how could we believe in such a negative doctrine like the doctrine of original sin when God calls us very good from the beginning? And I was watching this video, and I was thinking, well, yeah, Genesis chapter 1, God places man in the garden and, and calls them very good. But by the end of Genesis chapter 3, God has placed angels with flaming swords to keep them out of that garden. So I don't know, it's, it's almost like something went wrong. I don't know, right? And so that's kind of where we are to start this morning at the end of chapter 3. After they sinned and they're removed from the garden in the presence of God, look at it with me. Genesis chapter 3, it's up on the screens. It says, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden. And yet, when we think about it, they still had more freedom than any human in history in all the ways that we speak about freedom, right? I mean, they had the whole world to themselves at this point. They had the freedom to go anywhere else, to do anything. They had no parents telling them what to do. They had no um, emails from LinkedIn telling them to connect with somebody, right? They had no jobs, no bosses, no government, no taxes to pay, no people to please, right? The Libertarians, the Ron Pauls, like you'd be pleased, right? Where's the Libertarians, right? No tariffs, no billionaires, no wealth gap. All the Bernie Sanders fans would be happy, right? Where's all the Bernie Sanders fans in the house? I don't think they wake up this early. So, They have freedom to do anything, right? And yet Adam and Eve were left in the destruction of their sin, right? So we see clearly. More freedom than you would ever see. The whole world to themselves, and yet they're left to live out the curses of their sin and begin the humanity that we belong to. And how does that go? Well, you jump forward just a few verses. The first verses of chapter 4. We see that the first person born of a woman came murders the second person born of a woman, Abel. So how's freedom going so far on earth, right? It's not a great start for freedom. And this is important, this should be humbling for us, right? Because we can talk a lot about the hope of human progress and we can listen to political figures tell us, I'm going to bring utopia to us. And it's clear from the very beginning that we are a broken people, right? I think the first thing for us to see this morning is that, that we can receive every socio-political freedom on earth, and it would all amount to nothing if we are not free from our sin. Amen, villagers? I want to keep going and jump ahead a bit to the book of Exodus, and this is after you know the patriarchs, and one of the lowest points for God's people was their physical slavery in Egypt forced into labor, forced to abandon their children to die. I grabbed a few verses here, Exodus chapter 1. Look at this one. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. <laughs> I mean, your physical situation, your physical freedom cannot get much worse than this. So God rescues them out of this and into physical freedom, but it doesn't take long before they're deep deep in sin, right? I mean, chapter 14, God literally is parting the Red Sea for them to cross. And then chapter 16, they're already complaining, right? And then in chapter 32, we find this. Look at it with me. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Bible teaches us in just the second book that God can literally rescue us from slavery, and the killing of our own children, and we will still, not long after, be drawn to worship other false gods. It's humbling for us. And I think it shows us this, the second thing. Worshiping God in spiritual freedom does not flow naturally from our physical freedom. It's not a natural prerequisite, it's not a natural progression, it's not automatic. We can't devote our lives to political, cultural freedom, thinking that out of that will flow true worship of God. If people were just free politically, then they could worship God. We can have drastic improvements in our culture, and our society, but ultimately, if we're not reconciled to God by faith, if we're not following God in obedience, we will destroy ourselves. That's what the Bible shows us, Right? and we will never worship God as we ought. In 2019, the Pew Research Group did a global study in 34 countries, and it was one single question that they asked people, and this was the question. Is it necessary to believe in God in order to be moral and have good values? And what they found was that the way this question was answered was directly correlated to the per capita GDP of the nation. And this is what it looked like on on the slides and you can probably read some of those, but, but essentially the idea that we will create peace and prosperity and out of what we will see, people will come to believe that they need God. Well, the reality is the opposite. That you have here in the poorest countries on earth this strong belief that they're desperate for God. You see Kenya, 95%, one of the lowest household GDPs on earth. And you see Sweden, towards the bottom right, 5% answered that question, yes. I think what we see in our world is that in our abundance does not come the freedom to then turn to God and depend on Him. In our abundance comes autonomy and pride. We come to believe that we don't need God at all, and God's design has always been that we turn our hearts toward God, and out of that spiritual freedom, and out of that dependence on God, we pursue righteousness, and mercy, and justice, and prosperity for people around us. You see that? You see the difference? I was thinking this week, you know, God rescued his people out of a brutal life in Egypt, and But I wonder if the Israelites, in those dark and and hopeless days, I wonder if they worshiped God in a way that was more beautiful than maybe any other time, left with so little and and crying out to God. And so I want to ask this question this morning. Have Have you considered that maybe the most difficult seasons of your physical life could be the most beautiful seasons of your spiritual life? Have you considered that maybe the most difficult seasons of your physical life could be the most beautiful seasons of your spiritual life. When you're feeling a, a pressing weight and very little freedom, you might never feel more spiritually free. I remember being maybe 13 years old, and my parents would have me read books about different missionaries, and I was reading a book on the famous missionary Adoniram Judson, who dedicated his life to translating the Bible for the Burmese people, and and, and he was thrown in prison in 1824, and he spent 17 months on the floor of a prison cell with his arms and legs in shackles. And I remember just being a young teenager, and my mind couldn't, like, comprehend that degree of suffering. And I found this quote from him. This is Judson writing this. He, he later wrote that about those days of his life. He said, While therefore your tears flow, let a due proportion be tears of joy. Yet take the bitter cup with both hands and sit down to your meal. You will soon learn a secret that there is sweetness at the bottom. It would be hard to say that about that moment in life. And this got me thinking about our church and our people and as a pastor, some of the things that we're praying for and the people that we know and the people that are going through things, right? There's people in this room, in this church who are going through very serious things. There's people in this church, several people in this church who are going through chemotherapy right now and maybe you've never felt so physically defeated in your whole life. And I think we look at God's Word, and we say, who says this can't be the most spiritually alive season of your life, you know? Some might say, you know, you can't be full of joy if your body is broken. You aren't free. Well, they they don't know our God. I think that's what we see really clearly in Scripture, right? Our sins are forgiven, and every day we are one day closer to eternity with Jesus. How could we be more free than that, right? Amen? Amen. Let's keep going. I want to look now at the life of the Apostle Paul moving our way through Scripture. The question for us is how do we love freedom? How do we protect freedom? How do we fight for freedom? Because these things align with the heart of God, but without making freedom itself an idol in our hearts. And while continually living up as, living as, as God's people who are willing to accept whatever cup God gives us, whether it's a cup of joy or a cup of sorrow. The Apostle Paul teaches us a lot about this, right? Because he was from a devout Jewish family, but he had Roman citizenship, very unique. And he he appealed to his citizenship when his life was in danger. He took advantage of his civil rights at times, right? Look at Acts 25, verse 11. This uh, This is Paul speaking. He said, "'If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything "'for which I deserve to die, "'I do not seek to escape death.' But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. <laughs> it's kind of cool. He says, I don't want to die for no reason. I want to stay alive. I want to preach the gospel. And so he takes advantage of the, the civil order of society. This is a good thing. God is the creator of order and human civility. Systems that prevent against unjust punishment are systems that God loves. And ultimately, Paul is going to die for his faith. But it's because he's preaching the gospel, and Paul's content with that. He says he's content with it. Look at Philippians 1. For, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, people use the phrase, money burns a hole in that guy's pocket. When we say that expression, what we mean is that it's a person who whenever they have money, they just they have to spend it. It has to flow out of them, right? I was thinking as, as I studied this that, that freedom should burn a hole in our pockets. That whatever political freedom God grants me, I will cash that in for the sake of the gospel. Does that make sense? Paul's saying, look, I think you should set me free. I mean, you're gonna regret it because I'm just I'm not gonna shut up about Jesus, but I think you should do it. You kinda have to, right? <laughs> I'm gonna cash in that freedom. This is a system I've been put in. I have political freedom here. I, I have some ounce of freedom. I'm gonna cash that in for the sake of the gospel, not for myself. Because I'm willing to be in this prison cell, and we know he was, right? And if preaching the gospel means that we lose all of our freedoms, if declaring Jesus means a life of chains and the ultimate loss of physical freedoms, then of course that's what he chooses. I mean, very clear when we read the writings of Paul. Is it very clear when we look at our own lives though, right? Look at Philippians chapter four. This is Paul's declaration of his contentment in all circumstances. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The and third thing I think for us this morning is this, that we can display Jesus in our freedom. We can display Jesus in our lack of freedom, but we can't display Jesus if we worship freedom. Does that make sense? If I can bring God glory through my freedom, then I'll do that. If I can bring God glory by worshiping in him in the midst of losing my freedoms, I will do that. And so, therefore, the rudder of my life is not my love of freedom. The rudder of my life is not my pursuit of freedom. The rudder of my life is my singular focus on the glory of God in whatever may come. Amen? Amen? I was thinking I could go home tonight, and I could log on my computer, and I could use my religious freedom in this country to, to send money to an organization that would purchase Bibles to be smuggled into a country without religious freedom, where Christians would risk their lives to distribute those Bibles. And if those Bibles are found by the wrong people, then those Christians could find themselves in prison or facing death. Meanwhile, I would be here, waking up, watching the sunrise, hugging my kids, making breakfast. No police are gonna come to my door, right? Is it wrong for us to live in this freedom? No, but would we be willing to give up our freedom and take similar risks? That's the question for us as God's people, yes? To live is Christ and to die is gain. I wanna stop and talk specifically about religious freedom in our country and because I think we should see it as a beautiful gift from God. And we should, with the freedoms we have, we should fight to protect it. If you go back and look at the original writings and and the debates that surrounded the language of the crafting of the Constitution, you see clearly that, that the term religion is used interchangeably with the term conscience. The idea is that to violate your conscience is sin, and the government should leave people the freedom to follow their conscience. And certainly, these men were not perfect, and the documents are not the word of God. It's just man's attempt to create an orderly society. But to the extent... That there has been freedom for people to follow their conscience in their religious beliefs. We celebrate that, right? It's a gift from the Lord that freedom of conscience is viewed as a human right in our country. And so I think we have a lot to be grateful for. Is, is American history perfect? Has there been lots of evil? Of course. Is there? Is there a lot of injustice? Of course. Has there been a lot of corruption in our history? Of course. Do a lot of the same people always end up getting more wealthy and more powerful? Seems like it. <laughs> it's not a perfect country, but somehow God has placed us in this nation, in a, in a society that, that has some civility and order and, and has allowed us to live in relative peace for many years and and allowed us the freedom to be in this place, and and, and a church, and and, and a state that doesn't dictate a single religion, and and we have the autonomy and freedom in our church to to raise up our own leaders and pastors, and we can give generously to things and and, and distribute those funds as we see best fit. We should celebrate these things. And Christians should, in their conscience, fight for religious freedom in our country and around the world because it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing that God loves. And, and of course we pray that all men and women would come to believe in Jesus, but we want religious freedom for all faiths in all parts of the world, right? Lastly this morning, the place I want us to stop is at the end, or we could say the beginning. It's Revelation chapter 21. when We see the renewal of all things. This is our hope in freedom, Right? We're back in the garden with our creator where we belong. Revelation 21 says, "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. "'For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, "'and the sea was no more. "'And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, "'coming down out of heaven from God, "'prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. "'And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "'Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. "'He will dwell with them and they will be his people.'" And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Our hope in eternity with God is what allows us to hold loosely to our earthly freedoms. There's a lot of times in our life when we wish our best moments could just last forever, and and those moments should instead remind us of our eternity and our heavenly home. There's a lot of times in our life that we feel a sense of like nostalgia for, for past days or past moments or simpler times, and that should also remind us of our heavenly home. Maybe you feel this way on 4th of July. Growing up as a kid, 4th of July, it always felt like that one night where like everybody got along, it was just fun and parades and watermelon and neighborhood parties. People are like, Do you want to light this firework? Not really. I want you to light it, right? (laughs) Do you ever find yourself becoming like a grumpy old American? Yeah? I think I do sometimes. You say like, I wish I could raise my kids in a time when kids would just play outside till the street lights came on. Right, kids? And they didn't have cell phones. Right, kids? And there was like a milkman who delivered the milk. Do I want to drink the milk? No, I hate milk, but it's nice to know that he's there, right? And this nostalgia, right, it's like a very funny thing because we always remember things better than they really were, right? And in reality, it's like, you know, I wish we could grow up when times were less stressful and, you know, the kids just run in the sprinklers and then we do some quick, like, family drills in the nuclear bunker, you know, during the Cold War. (laughs) The good days, right? Very peaceful. (laughs) For me, I, I get that, that feeling, though, when I watch, like, the Sandlot and that scene where they play baseball on Fourth of July, and the fireworks are going off, and, and all the kids are just happy, and you're like, I'm happy for you, kids. It's like, for that one moment, there's not a care in the world, you know? Even, like, squints, like, that guy's had a rough life, not a care in the world. And the temptation, of course, for us, right, is because we live in this, like, scarcity weight, right? The temptation is, like, how can I bottle up these moments? How can I make these moments last longer? How can I get old moments back? wish my kids were still young, you know? <laughs> I wish we still lived in that place. But rather than fighting to bottle up those moments, I think God's desire is that these moments would point us to heaven when the day that would come that there would be no longing, Right? I think the last thing this morning is that we, we use moments of joyful freedom to worship God in gratitude and to strengthen our focus for the road ahead. We praise God for moments of grace. We praise God that he gives us a glimpse of heaven. <clears throat> but we can't make anything an idol and clench our fists and try to hold tightly to it. Instead, we, we get right back on the road and we know that this life is not perfect, but we're headed home And who do you think is going to model that best for us in Scripture? Of course it's Jesus. I want to show you one more thing. I think this is how Jesus felt at the Last Supper. At the Last Supper, Jesus shares a meal with his closest friends, and and he's enjoying, like, the common grace of a meal and conversation, and and I I think laughter and joy. I mean, other than, like, like Judas having the nerve to show up, right? It's like... I think it was pretty chill besides that, right? I think Jesus genuinely cherished this meal. Do you think that? Like, I don't think Jesus was just trying to get through some sort of, like, checklist, right? Like, okay, let me just go through this really quick. Walked on water, healed the blind dudes. One last meal with these losers. Then we're doing cross, resurrection, get to go home. <laughs> I think that this was something that Jesus really cherished, but Jesus knew the path set before him and he knew he needed to get right back on the path. You can't bottle up that moment. You can't cling to it. The sun will set and the sun will rise and the next day Jesus would be in chains. The son of God went from a joyful dinner table scene to being crucified and displayed in humiliation all within a period of, what, 15 hours? Jesus gets right back on the road and he purchases our purchases our spiritual freedom on the cross. And, and that, of course, is what we celebrate more than anything today and every day, amen? I'm spend the last minute just wrapping up here, specifically just talk about this country and the time in which we live. I think it's very likely that being a Christian in this country will become increasingly difficult and increasingly hostile, and increasingly a liability in your career And your relationships and your social status. I think it's easy to stand at a distance and, and say, you know, Christians today, they love screaming that they're being persecuted and like, this is nothing. And certainly that's fair. I mean, no one's being fed to the lions, right? We've had that before. We're clearly not at lion level persecution. But I think the weight of pressure coming from society to fall in line with. A single acceptable position for every political and moral issue is going to go head-to-head with Christianity in the coming years. And there are things that our culture celebrates that we do not celebrate, and there's many so-called Christians who will fall away at the risk of losing political freedoms. I think it's important for us to declare this morning that freedom of being loved by this world is no freedom at all. And so, as a church, we say, praise God for what he's given us. Praise God that we have freedom to worship him this morning, and may God prepare our hearts for whatever days may come, yes? Matthew chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? (laughs) It's Jesus talking about freedom, right? And so tonight, my plan is to eat a lot of food. I plan to give other people a lighter to light off a lot of fireworks. And I think at some point, I'm going to catch a glimpse of My little girl's holding sparklers and screaming and dancing barefoot in the street, and I'm going to say, thank you, God, that we get to live in this country. And that's the easy part of the prayer, right, because the prayer's got to keep going. The harder part of the prayer goes like this, and whatever the days ahead may look like, I want to worship you more than I worship my comfort, my autonomy, my freedoms, and I want to live a life that brings you glory no matter what it may cost me. Amen, village church. Happy Fourth of July. Can we pray with me? Well, God, we are um, we're humbled to be in a room that is full of people who want to worship you because you deserve it. And God, we're humbled to think that many people all around the world are gathered to worship you at the risk of their life. And so we pray that we would bring you much glory this morning in our humility. I'm grateful for the place that you've called us, not just this country, but this city, these cities and this place where we get to live and and grow together. God, we pray that you would just teach us to, to hold tightly to you and to hold loosely to everything else. May we be a people who, who fight for freedom for every good reason that flows out of the gospel, but may that never be the thing that sits on the throne of our hearts. God, we're content in you. We're satisfied in you. We declare that, that you are good, and in you we have everything we need. And so may we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.